Section 1 of The Beginning of the Middle Ages by Richard William Church. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 1. Teutonic Settlements in the West. Fall of the Empire in the West, 406 to 476. Part 1. The impulse given by the enterprises and successes of Alaric showed itself in the invasion of the western provinces by various Teutonic tribes who henceforth held possession of what they invaded. On the last day of the year in which Stilicho destroyed the Vandal Radagais and his mixed army before Florence, 405, another portion of the Vandals with their confederate tribes, Swaves, Burgundians, Alans, found their way into Gaul, perhaps as Gibbon suggests across the frozen Rhine, partly ravaging, partly settling, partly pushing to further conquest, but seldom returning to their former seats. In the year in which Alaric set up and then degraded his mock emperor Attalus, after the siege of Rome in 409, Swaves and Vandals, a part of this host, under Hermanric, crossed the Pyrenees into the rich and peaceful province of Spain. Three years after the sack of Rome and the death of Alaric, the Burgundians in 413, who in company with the Vandals crossed the Rhine in 406, had occupied the left bank of the Middle Rhine. Thence they gradually spread westwards and southwards into Gaul, and the result, after many vicissitudes, was the foundation of a kingdom of the Burgundians under Gundicar from 416 to 436, Gundoik from 456 to 463, and the more famous Gundobad the Lawgiver, 472 to 510. It was the first of the many Burgundies that were to be, fixing a famous name in the new geography of the West and impressing a distinct character on the population which bore that name. No limits and no political conditions varied so much as those of the Burgundies, kingdoms, dukedoms, counties, provinces, long striving after an independence which could not be maintained. The first Burgundy of Gundacar and Gundabad comprised the valleys of the Rhone and the Sun, with western Switzerland and Savoy, from the Alps and the Jura as far as the Durance, and even at one time with Avignon and Marseille. Almost at the same time a confederation, or rather two confederations, of German tribes, whose name was to fill a yet greater place in history, the Franks, who had finally settled from the Main along the Lower Rhine and in what is now Belgium, appear defending the Roman frontier against the invading Vandals. They had long disturbed the empire by their ferocity and spirit of adventure. They had by this time gained room within its borders and become its allies, and they even suffered severe losses in fighting for it. But as the defense of the empire became hopeless, they soon followed the invading movement and pressed on to the valleys of the Moselle, the Meuse, the Scheldt, and the Somme, and the plains and cities of what is now Champagne. And immediately after the death of Alaric, who had sacked Rome and occupied Italy, the Goths, under their new leader, Athalf, a name which has been softened and Latinized into Adolphus, adopted the momentous resolution of relinquishing Italy and seeking their fortune in the West. 
bearing with them the treasures of Alaric, they marched into Gaul. They occupied step by step in the course of the century nearly the whole of the south between the Rhone and the Loire, the Mediterranean and the ocean, and they poured into Spain, driving before them or subduing the earlier invaders, Vandals, Swaves, Alans. The Roman city of Toulouse became their capital. Before the middle of the fifth century, the kingdom of the West Goths had become the mightiest among its neighbors. It stretched from the Loire to the mouth of the Tagus and the columns of Hercules. It possessed the great cities of Aquitaine, Narbonne, Bordeaux, Toulouse. It had absorbed the last fragment of independent Roman Gaul, Auvergne. In Spain it had cooped up the earlier invaders, the Suaves, into the mountains of Asturias and Galicia. It had driven the Vandals into Africa. It had rapidly assumed an organized shape with its peculiar polity, its half-Roman legislation, its national councils. It had replaced the empire in the West, and it seemed as if a state had been founded which was to unite in one Gaul and Spain and take the lead in the new order of things, as if a Gothia or a Gothland was to supplant the name of Gaul or Rome. This magnificent prospect was not to be fulfilled. The lands north and south of the Pyrenees were not to continue united, and the Goths were not to be the leaders of Western Europe. But from the Goths of Toulouse sprang a line of kings which ruled in Spain and shaped its future in history till the Mahometan conquest in 711. It was to be long indeed before the kingdoms as we know them of France and Spain began to appear above the confusion. But the first rude courses of the foundations on which, through such various changes, they were to rise, were laid in the Teutonic movement in which Alaric led the way. Another invasion, more fatal in its consequences to the empire, though itself transient as a conquest, was the consequence of the Gothic invasion of Spain. The Vandals in Spain, the forerunners of the Goths, pressed by the combined power of the Gothic kingdom and the Roman provincials, and tempted by the invitation of a Roman governor, Count Boniface, who had been stung into treason by the intrigues at Ravenna, passed into Africa under Geyseric, the most crafty, the most perfidious, the most ruthless of the barbarian kings, and of all of them, the most implacable foe of Rome and its civilization. The late repentance and the resistance of Count Boniface could not avert the Vandal conquest and the desolation of Africa. The death of St. Augustine during the siege of his city Hippo in 430 and the surprise of Carthage in 439 mark the date of the ruin of Roman civilization on the southern shore of the Mediterranean, a civilization that had retained, more unalloyed than that of any other province, the peculiar Latin type, the roughness and the original force of the Latin mind and character. The Vandal conquest, short-lived as it was compared with other barbarian occupations, dealt a far heavier blow than they to the weakened stability of the empire. It was not only the severance from it of a great province, a second home of Latin letters and habits, but during the long reign of Geyseric from 429 to 477, 
Rome and Italy were made acquainted with two new forms of suffering. To the ordinary plagues of barbarian invasion were now added starvation and piracy. Africa had been, with Egypt, the great storehouse from which Italy had drawn its usual supplies of corn. Africa was now in the hands of a deadly enemy, Egypt in those of the rival and unfriendly Eastern Emperor. And next, the possession of Carthage suggested to Geyseric the ambition of being master, not of Africa only, but of the Mediterranean. The Vandal fleets ravaged and tormented the Mediterranean coasts like those of Hyradin Barbarossa and the Barbary rovers of later ages. Whither shall we sail? asked Geyseric's pilot. Sail to those with whom God is angry, was the reply. Thus, in the first half of the fifth century, the empire was broken up in the west, everywhere out of Italy, in Gaul, in Spain, in Africa, the newcomers were the masters. The separation from the empire at the beginning of the fifth century of the island of Britain and of the continental province which afterwards bore the same name, neither of which was again to be united to it, rather marked than contributed to the decline of Rome. In the anarchy of the West, the soldiery in Britain, or those of them who had not been withdrawn by Stilicho, long accustomed to claim a voice in the choice of emperors, set up a succession of candidates for the empire, one of whom, with the famous name of Constantine, disputed for a time the imperial title with Honorius and the possession of Gaul and Spain with the Goths between 407 and 411. The Goths, professing to serve the empire, united with the soldiers of Honorius and overthrew the last western Constantine, and after him all the other provincial rivals of Honorius, who in the universal confusion ventured to strike for power between 411 and 416. But the empire finally retired from the island of Britain. An obscure interval of troubled independence succeeded, and in the middle of the century, Jutes, Saxons, and Angles were beginning their conquests. Yet the empire, as has been said in the opinion and feeling of men, still lasted under these strange conditions. The Teutonic invaders, for the most part, professed to acknowledge its existence and authority, to respect its laws, though claiming to be themselves exempt from them, to serve it after their own manner as its officers and soldiers, to call themselves its guests or its confederates, even in the possessions which they had either seized or acquired by a forced sale. Its civil administration still went on, at least for the Roman population, side by side with the customs and royal jurisdiction of the military occupiers. The position of the Teutonic conquerors and settlers was analogous to that of the early English conquerors in India under the Mughal Empire. They were in it, but not of it. Its paramount title and supremacy were supposed where these did not come into collision with the interests of the conquerors. Its sanctions, when convenient, were sought for, and made useful to give legitimacy to what the sword had won. In stronger hands, and under more favorable circumstances, the empire might have lasted on as in the East, and suiting itself to its altered circumstances, have perhaps recovered its ground, by incorporating and assimilating to itself 
according to its old favorite and successful policy, its new subjects, who, with all their fierce vigor, were not unwilling to be civilized. But in the course of the century, two things, a fresh and more tremendous eruption of barbarians and a fatal innovation in domestic policy, finally shattered for the time the imperial system in the West. The eruption was the invasion of Attila and the Huns. The innovation was the adoption as a settled custom of what Alaric had thought of as a temporary expedient, perhaps had only done in mockery. A foreign soldier, master of the military force of the empire, claimed and was allowed to make and unmake the emperors of the West. The invasion of the Huns from 433 to 453 was the appearance of entirely new actors in the great tragedy. Between the Roman world and the German invaders there were affinities, though they might be subtle and obscure, of race, of language, of thought and moral ideas, and there had grown up between them the long familiarity of alternate war and peace. They had even met halfway in religious ideas, and Goths, Vandals, Burgundians, under the form of Arianism, had embraced Christianity with sometimes fanatical zeal. But the Huns were not like Goths and Vandals, a Teutonic or even a Slav people. They belonged to that terrible race whose original seats were in the vast central tableland of Asia, who under various names, Huns, Tartars, Mongols, Turks, have made it their boast to devastate for the sake of devastation, and from whom have sprung the most renowned among the destroyers of men, Attila, Genghis, Timur, the Ottomans. It is a race which long experience has shown to be less than any other in sympathy with Western civilization and more obstinately intractable to its influence. The Huns, themselves impelled westwards by the wars which agitated the vast deserts stretching from the Volga to China, had driven before them in frantic terror the many tribes of the German stock which had shaken the empire, and they had been for some time hovering on its eastern frontier, taking part, like other barbarians, in its disturbances and alliances. Emperors paid them tribute, and Roman generals kept up a politic of a questionable correspondence with them. Stilicho had detachments of Huns in the armies which fought against Alaric. The greatest Roman soldier after Stilicho, and like Stilicho, of barbarian parentage, Aetius, who was to be their most formidable antagonist, had been a hostage and a messmate in their camps, and he had followed a common practice of the time when he invited the Huns to the frontiers of Italy to support a candidate for the imperial dignity. About 433, Attila, the son of Munzuk, like Charles the Great, equally famous in history and legend, became their king. Attila was the exact prototype and forerunner of the Turkish chiefs of the House of Othman. In his profound hatred of civilized men, in his scorn of their knowledge, their arts, their habits and religion, and in spite of this, in his systematic use of them as his secretaries and officers, in his rapacity combined with personal simplicity of life, in his insatiate and indiscriminate destructiveness, in the cunning which veiled itself under rudeness, in his extravagant arrogance and audacious pretensions, in his sensuality, 
in his unscrupulous and far-reaching designs, in his ruthless cruelty joined with capricious displays of generosity, mercy, and good faith, we see the image of the irreclaimable Turkish barbarians who ten centuries later were to extinguish the civilization of Eastern Europe. The attraction of Attila's daring character and his genius for the war, which nomadic tribes delight in, gave him absolute ascendancy over his nation and over the Teutonic and Slavonic tribes near him. Like other conquerors of his race, he imagined and attempted an empire of ravage and desolation, a vast hunting ground and preserve in which men in their works should supply the objects and zest of the chase. The one power on earth was to be the terror of Attila's name. The one penalty of disobedience and opposition was to be the edge of Attila's sword. He humbled and made subjects of the barbarians round him. He insulted and ravaged the Eastern Empire up to the walls of Constantinople. He revived the old feud with the Visigoths. Then he picked a quarrel with Valentinian III and the court of Ravenna. He claimed some church spoils said to have been stolen. He claimed Honoria, the sister of the emperor, as his betrothed bride. Keen and shrewd in his views of policy, he entered into an alliance with Geyseric and the Vandals of Africa, who were to attack Italy, and at last, affecting to be the soldier of the empire against the rebellious Visigoths at the head of the ferocious horsemen, whom for years he had been gathering round him in the plains between the Thais and the Danube, where his wooden city and wooden palace were built. He burst with the speed and terror of a tempest on Central and Western Europe. End of section one.